Uh, this morning we're finishing our series on encountering Jesus, and uh, we've had three previous sermons. You might have been here for all of them. Uh, we've looked at Jesus being real, Jesus being near, Jesus being trustworthy, and this morning I'm going to speak on the theme Jesus being powerful. Jesus is powerful. Now you might think that's a pretty obvious statement. Every Christian knows or should know that Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus is fully God, fully human, and therefore, of course, he's powerful. I think the first fancy word I learnt as a kid was omnipotent. I don't know if that was your first fancy word, but that was my first, apart from supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and anti-disestablishmentarianism. It was probably my third word, omnipotent. But even though we might know this to be true intellectually, it's still a complete shock when he, he shows his power, isn't it? Uh, we're like surprised. And the biography of Jesus is full of surprises, of Jesus showing his power, and time and time again, people are surprised. Even when he was a 12-year-old boy, and uh, it was Passover, and uh, his family had been to Jerusalem, and been to the temple and they were leaving and they left and they didn't realise he wasn't with them anymore. Where was he? He was in the temple showing his divine insight and prophetic knowledge of the scriptures and shocking all the teachers who were listening to this 12-year-old boy. When Jesus healed the two demon-possessed herdsmen who came out of a cave, they were full of wrath and violence because of the demons in them and he cast those demons out and sent them into the pigs those herdsmen were completely shocked they ran into the town told everyone and they were all shocked and wanted to come and meet Jesus when he was dying on the cross nobody expected him to be able to resist the power of the Roman Empire the soldiers mocked him saying come down from the cross and save yourself they had a laugh amongst themselves And then when he did rise from the dead, his own apostles were in complete confusion. And fair enough, I would be too and so would you. So how much harder is it for us to also believe in Jesus' power? So we need to be reminded of it, how he likes to use his power and put our trust in the witnesses of the apostles who saw it all firsthand. And one apostle who was really shocked at the power of Jesus was the Apostle Paul. And this morning we're going to look at the famous story of him coming to faith in Jesus. And also just reflect a bit at the end on that great passage from Isaiah 40 to help us understand just how Jesus is powerful. So let me read the passage from Acts 9. You might want to look on page 6 for that. Very famous passage. Meanwhile... Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? 
Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. The men travelling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptised and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. Well, great story, very famous. It's entered the kind of uh, general knowledge of the world and so people always talk about road to Damascus experiences for people when they have a sudden turnaround. And that's what we're going to see, what happened with Saul and what does it reveal to us about Jesus' power. And the first thing I want us to look at is how Jesus has the power over you. So the Apostle Paul, first known by his Hebrew name Saul, was a pious Pharisee who actively opposed the rise of Christianity. He persecuted and imprisoned Christians. And he did it because he believed they were heretics. His outrage was aggressive. He breathed out murderous threats against the Christians. They were his enemy. He was a high-ranking Jew, he was methodical in his persecution, so he worked in allegiance with the Jewish authorities. And this is why he was on his way to Damascus, which was about 257 kilometres northeast of Jerusalem, so it was a bit of a journey. And he was going there to purge it of any Christians that were doing the wrong thing in his eyes and take them back as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, we call the people that were in Damascus, where he was going, Christians now, but that's not what they were called at the time, and it's not what they call themselves. Seems like, from the passage, they, they called themselves, they were like Jews, but they called themselves the people of the way, perhaps the way of the Messiah. Um, they followed the way to salvation, the way to righteousness, um, whatever. They, they seemed to call themselves a way. 
This Damascus city where he was going was an ancient Syrian city. It goes all the way back to Abraham's time. We can read about it in, in uh, Genesis. It had a large Jewish population. And Saul's on his way there with an entourage of helpers. But he's stopped in his tracks on the road by a bright light from heaven that flashed around him. It was so startling that he fell to the ground on his face uh, kind of a, almost an image of a, a man worshipping before the divine, a position of extreme humility and fear and reverence. This was an appearance of the divine, an appearance of Jesus. Now Jesus had already died and ri- lived, died, risen and ascended into heaven and this is a special appearance of Jesus from heaven. Later in Acts 26, when Paul's recounting this event, he says the light was brighter than the sun and it appeared suddenly and there was no warning. And while it's true that Jesus seems to work in our lives over the long period, you know, often people in their old age, they can, Christians in their old age, they can look back and say, I remember when I was a child how I can see how God was working in my life, how Jesus was involved in my life. And while we have this sense of the long term, Also, he seems to sometimes work suddenly in your life, out of the blue. It seems to happen at various times in our lives. Jesus says his return is going to be like this. People will not expect it. We will be going about our work, minding our own business. Then in the twinkling of an eye, like a thief in the night, these are all the words he uses, when we least expect it, he will return. And that's, that's the final return. But even now, in our lives, it can happen like that, just when we least expect it. It can be like that with calling, a calling he might place on our lives. One day you can be living your life, going about your business, and the next day, without warning, it's like Jesus puts his calling on your life to do something. And you can't put it out of your mind and your heart. I've had this happen various times in my life. Just, I'll give you two, uh, an example from a long time ago and an example from recently. I remember when I was going to church to visit St. Hilary's in 1999 with my girlfriend Jo, who's now my wife Jo, and um, I was sitting there in the pews and there was a notice from uh, Steve Webster, who's the minister at Carlton for uh, still, I think he's about to finish, and he was working at St. Hilary's at the time and he said, we are looking for a youth evangelist to come on staff. And to put it in context, I was a full-time classical musician at that time, was not thinking about ministry, and, but suddenly I had this sort of thing out of the blue, you should apply for that job, Peter. And I was like, ooh, that's a bit weird. I wonder if that's Jesus saying that to me or if it, calling from the Holy Spirit inside my heart or is it just me? Anyway, I wasn't completely sure. I had no a training, no, no experience apart from as a volunteer in my church, but I applied and I was given that job. And I feel like I was responding to something Jesus was doing in my heart in, in, in that moment. A more recent example, only about three months ago, I was talking to my friend Chris, who works for Scripture Union, And he said to me, Peter, I'm organising this camp. It's going to be really great. Um, 
in, um, in, in January, or December, December, January, Christmas holidays, five-day camp, family camp, and it's going to be with new refugee families in, in Melbourne, living in Melbourne, and also some Christian families coming together for a week's holiday together. And I've, straight away in my heart, I felt this, you should tell Chris you're going to go on that camp. <laughs> and I went away and sort of thought about it and prayed about it for a little bit, and then I rang him up and said, Chris, I don't know if this is right, but I think um, um, Jesus wants me to tell you that I, I, I want to volunteer for this camp, and which I'm going to the first meeting after this service. So these things happen. This is just a little example for me where, out of the blue, Jesus intervenes in my life and, and uh, tells me to do something. Now, when Jesus does this, we're not puppets. When he shines his light brightly on our lives, when he did to Saul, when he does it to us and says, speaks into our life, we're not puppets. We don't just robotically have to do. We could resist it. And we have to get used to hearing that voice. And we're not going to be 100% sure what we're hearing. And, you know, we don't always know exactly. We, we have a sense that it might be a calling on it in our life. But I think it's good to respond to those promptings. Um, I used to not be good at that when I was younger, but I think I've got better at it as I've got older. So this is what happened to Saul, but at a much, much larger scale. And because he was a special case, namely the last of the apostles, Jesus didn't just whisper he heard the, the sound of a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And the men with Saul could hear the voice, but they couldn't see the light. In Acts 26, verse 14, uh, Paul says that the voice was speaking in Aramaic, the Hebrew dialect that Jesus spoke. The voice said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, Saul had been persecuting the church, but because Jesus, the Son of God, is so intertwined with the church, so intimately bonded, persecuting the church is the same as persecuting Jesus. This is why he said in Luke 10, verse 16, to his disciples, whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So immediately... Saul, as Saul, he spoke, spoke to Saul, and Saul's on the ground. And Saul, it said Saul became blind. Jesus gave him instructions to go into Damascus where he would receive further instructions. So he stood up from the ground, not being able to see, and his helpers took him into the city of Damascus. And he remained there for three days and did not eat anything throughout that time. He was fasting as a form of penitence, where penitence means to show that you're sorry and to repent. And actually, in the earliest church instruction book we've got from the first century called the Didache, uh, it was common practice to fast before your baptism. Perhaps they got that off, off Saul's con conversion to Jesus. It's a way of preparing yourself. Well, what did Jesus do to Saul on the road to Damascus? We often call this the conversion of Saul. I think I just, just did then a few seconds ago. But um, maybe that's not the right way to see this. The, the theologian N.T. Wright says, um, 
it's not quite a conversion because he didn't actually change religions. N.T. Wright says, not for one second did Saul cease to believe in the one God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. No, what happened was that he had an encounter with the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. In, in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, he says that on the road to Damascus, he glimpsed the glory of God in the face of Jesus, the Messiah. So Saul suddenly could see what the martyr Stephen could see when he looked up to heaven um, before he was stoned to death. He realised that the claims of the people of the way, that Jewish sect, all these claims about Jesus were true. So after the Christian leader from Damascus called Ananias prayed for him, he was filled with the Spirit and he was baptised and his sins were forgiven and he was permanently joined to Christ and he had a new purpose as an apostle. He, he continued as a Jew, but a Jew that believed in the Messiah. So that's why this language of conversion maybe doesn't get the sense right. It's not like he's going from one religion to another. He's continuing on a line. But now following the Messiah and having his life transformed. And now, as Jesus said to Ananias, as um, the Lord spoke to him in his vision, after this dramatic experience of God, Saul would go from a change from being a, a persecutor, a persecuting Pharisee, to a persecuted preacher. He would go on to rejoice in being persecuted. How strange is that? Do you think about that? Persecuted for his devotion to Jesus. It became a central theme in his life and ministry. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and being exposed to death again and again. And he goes on to list about a hundred things that he's done more extreme in terms of suffering for the name of Jesus. And he had a new purpose with a clearly defined God-given ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles, preaching the good news of Jesus. He had a new way of relating to God through the, through the person of Jesus and a new way of understanding life through the grace of Jesus. This is all the power of Jesus at work. Jesus is powerful. So we've got to believe that. He has the power to change your life. And we can forget that so easily. Some of you will remember, if you were around last year, we had on, um, in our ministry team a, minute, a person doing their ministry placement from Ridley College, and her name was Katrina Johnson. And um, she was based at the Clifton Hill Congregation, um, and Katrina um, had been into her 40s um, an atheist oceanographer and she worked for the CSIRO in Tasmania and was based often in Antarctica. So she had this pretty cool life and she was happy going about her life, she said, and she described herself as a bit of a hedonist, being completely intellectually geared against Christianity. But then after her mum died... I think her father died first and then her mum died. She organised for her, the funeral of her mum to happen at St David's Cathedral in Hobart. And there the dean of the cathedral, um, after he met Katrina, he challenged her to do the Alpha course, which she did. 
And it was through doing that that she encountered the grace of Jesus. And her life was turned around. One thing led to another, and Jesus put this strong call in her, on her life. And now she's the associate minister at St. David's Cathedral. <laughs> she's gone from being an atheist oceanographer to a cathedral evangelist. Okay, that's change. The change that comes from the power of Jesus. If you want to sum up Jesus' power, it's in the word grace. That's really where it is. It's through experiencing grace and having it applied to your heart that you too will have a road to Damascus turn around. The grace of Jesus that says you have made huge mistakes in your life, you're a sinner, you're not worthy of God's love, and yet God loves you and wants you to be his child and offers you salvation and forgiveness and eternal life. He loves you and he wants you to give your life to him. That grace is beautiful. It's brighter than the sun. It will make you into a new person. So go to Jesus because he has power to change you and he will not necessarily do it in the way you expect or even in the way that you ask, ask necessarily, but he's going to change you. But also what we see in this passage is that it's not all about you because Jesus has power over others as well. Yes, it's true he's got power over you, but he's got power over the people in this room and the people in our neighbourhoods, your friends and your family. And this was certainly the case for Saul. Saul's encounter with Jesus had made him blind and in his blind state, his friends take him to Damascus and there he stays on straight street. Every time I read that, I think of a Broadway musical. I don't know why. Straight street. I don't know. There's a song there somewhere. In the house of a man called Judas. No connection to the other Judas we all know. At that same time, Jesus intervened in another Christian man. So he's, Jesus is using this Judas man to open up his home for Saul. Because he's, you know, he's, there's an influence of Jesus' power in Judas's life. Mate, can you imagine being Judas, opening your door, and there's Saul, the f famous persecutor of Christians, standing at your door, and his friends are there, and he's blind, and he's saying, can I, I need to stay at your house because Jesus has told me to. I mean, can you imagine? But there's another person who Jesus intervenes with, and that's Ananias. This isn't the Ananias you might have heard about, as in Ananias and Sapphira, who dropped down dead because of their sin. No, nor was it Ananias, the high priest, who you read about in Acts 23. This is another Ananias, a third Ananias, a highly respected Christian man living in Damascus. Jesus spoke to Ananias in a vision, tells him to go to the house of Judas and to ask for Saul from Tarsus, who will be praying. Jesus gives Saul a vision of Ananias um, coming to heal his sight, so he knows what to expect. Ananias obeyed Jesus' instructions and went to the home of Judas and found Saul praying. And he does the praying, he lays hands on him, fills him with the Spirit and baptises him. And something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. And, the, and, so, and then he broke his fast as well and regained his healing. 
Notice that in the story of Saul's conversion, not only was Jesus working his power in Ananias' life and in Judas' life, he's working his power all over the place. One of my favourite theologians is, um, just to get a bit nerdy and technical here, a man called Kevin Van Hooser, who wrote a book, great book called The Drama of Doctrine, and he describes a Christian life as being like a play. And um, he says, the, the theatre is the creation, and the, the theatre company is the church, the script is the scripture, and the leader, the lead actor is God himself. And what's helpful about this image of the Christian life is that we are reminded that we're part of something bigger. In the kingdom of God, Jesus works in everyone's life in different ways, sometimes obviously and other times very quietly and subtly. And you have a much clearer and richer understanding of the kingdom if you realise it's not just about you, but it's about everyone. And if you want others to experience change through the power of Jesus, you have to realise that you might be called on to be the Ananias or the Judas from Straight Street in another person's life. That might be your role. There's a great book we used at Mary Creek about seven years ago called um, How People Change. And it's by Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp. Hands up if you've heard of it. No, I wanted to. Um, and in the authors, the, 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 they make this point that change from a discipleship point of view is a community project. If you've been part of a community group for several years and you've done deep work with each other, if you've opened up and shared your struggles and prayed for each other, you will know how our journey as disciples requires community support. We need the Ananiases and the Judases in our lives. And you'll know that this means that if Jesus calls on you to do this in another person's life, then you will need to engage with them and it will be costly for you. Being a Christian, there's a burden. We carry each other's burdens. And you'll find that this is extremely rewarding but also costly. That's the Christian life, friends. You share each other's burdens. The point I'm making is that Jesus has power over others and you might be that other for a, a person who's really experiencing the change. He might be working through you right now. This is life in the kingdom. If you want to be a Christian, you have to give up the idea that you are an island on your own and that the whole Bible is just about you and that you are the lead character in the story the star of your show. That's not how really it is in the kingdom. Jesus is the lead, the lead character in the, in the story. In, a, in the movie about a boy, Hugh Grant um, movie, he plays this single man who's caught in the tension of um, wanting to be, you know, live the bachelor lifestyle with all the freedoms, but also um, looking, longing for a meaningful relationship. And he says at the start of the movie, I won't put on the Hugh, the Hugh Grant voice, I was tempted, but... I won't, I won't. In my opinion, all men are islands, he says. Is it the start of the movie? And what's more, now's the time to be one. This is an island age. 100 years ago, for instance, you had to depend upon other people. Whereas now, you see, you can make yourself a little island paradise. With the right supplies, and more importantly, the right attitude, you can be sun-drenched, 
tropical, a magnet for young Swedish tourists. The sad fact is, like any island dweller, from time to time, I had to visit the mainland. And as the movie unfolds, he moves towards a meaningful relationship and eventually realises that that is really what life is about. Meaningful relationships. And that's what is true for Christians as well. We don't get to write our own story. We are not islands. We give that up. Jesus will change your story. He'll write it and he'll use you to change other people through his power. In the Anglican liturgy, we say, we are the body of Christ. His spirit is with us. It's all plural language. I encourage you to join community groups if you're not in one. And if you want to be in one, talk to me or talk to, talk to Emma at the end. And secondly, in your groups, go deep. There's nothing worse than a community group. There are worse things, but this is a pretty bad thing. Um, community groups just go shallow, you know. They just get together and week after week it's like, how's, how's your week? Mm, pretty good. Yeah. And you just never really talk about anything deep. Go deep. Um, allow yourselves to be open to being vulnerable and revealing the struggles in your life. I've sat in community groups and had people talk about all kinds of things there. You know, not, not breaking confidence or being inappropriate, but just talking about um, the longings for either discipleship change or, or the aches or the struggles that they're, they're going through. And you work together on that. And when you do that, what's incredible is Jesus' power is at work amongst the people. That's what's really good. So Jesus has power over you, and he has power over others. And just to make a very short point at the end now, and a very significant one, he has power over everything. And we had this great reading from Isaiah 40, Hamish read, which actually I had at my wedding. I loved it. I, I reveal the real reason I love it, apart from what it says, is because it's in Chariots of Fire. But um, and I've been watching that at the time, getting very excited about Chariots of Fire. Christians believe Jesus is fully man and fully God. And what Isaiah 40 reminds us is that not only should we meditate on Jesus' power in our lives and on the lives of others around us, but we can look to the heavens and be reminded of his power in the universe. Isaiah says, you might think the kingdoms around you are powerful, but compared with the men's power of God, they're like a drop in the bucket, they're like dust. Less than nothing, verse 17. He says, God is not like any idol or painting that you've created with your own human hands. No, he rules above the universe. He controls life and death. The rulers of this world, the presidents, the prime ministers, the politicians, the CEOs of big business, and all the people are like grasshoppers. In comparison, I love that, grasshoppers. Gets it in perspective. Verse 26, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? And then verse 27, that last bit there is so powerful. The Lord is the everlasting God. The Lord is a creator of the ends of the earth. The Lord does not get tired. The Lord increases the power of the weak. Even young people get tired and fall down, but those who hope in the Lord will have renewed strength. They will soar on wings like an eagle. In other words, if you hope in the power of Jesus, you will be made stronger. It doesn't matter how weak you are physically, even emotionally, your hope in Jesus and your trust in his power will make you stronger 
And this is a power that fills the entire universe and is available to you. I encourage you to invite that power into your life and into the lives of others and to fall face down in worship, in response. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, for our church and the people around us. We thank you for that power that we have access to and we pray that you work in each one of our lives to make us um, the kind of people you want us to be. We pray for intervention in our lives by your power. We pray for um, increased holiness. We pray for greater love in our hearts for each other and for you. And we pray that we can see your glory, even a glimpse of that sun light bright shining to soar. We can see a glimpse of that. Amen.